0: Welcome to the Scarred People Project. I'm Owen Dodge, your host. I'm a 13 year veteran police officer. We're going to dive headfirst here into the realities, of the shadows of society, unraveling stories of resilience, redemption, and stark realities of lives impacted by trauma, mental illness, abuse, addiction, and imprisonment. Today we're going to embark on a journey that exposes the underbelly that we're what needs to be changed in our systems. What that unique perspective gives me. And what we can do with the stories of the people involved. The inspiration that's behind clouds of marginalization. I too was born under fortune's darkest darkest cloud. Or poverty. I found men whose potential was stolen by a system designed to target disadvantage. Turning them into felons as youth. Or war on drugs. Has perverted American policing. It is the root of the distrust and the hatred towards law enforcement. Today, we confront the chaos that that has thrown. At the age of 21, I fulfilled my dream of becoming a police officer. See, despite all the poverty and dealing with illness myself, bipolar type 1 disorder, kept it well-managed. My mother, very much the artist and the free spirit, helped me manage it. We didn't have to go to doctors or pharmacists. Pharmacological routes. But as Explorer, we knew there was a very big stigma against any sort of mental illness and certainly getting help for it in law enforcement. It basically would have X me out to having gotten my dream job. So we didn't address it. And throughout my career, that was reinforced why that was a good idea. You know, from the dehumanizing term of like 5150 or my particular agency, 41 was the number, uses a clearing code to clear out dealing with someone with a mental Disorder. And a lot of times people stop becoming a person. They start becoming a 481. Yeah, four, what did that 481 want? No, nothing. Just be like, yeah, what did that piece of trash want? Their, their opinion doesn't matter. Their existence matters less. And that was the dehumanization. Repeatedly seen in law enforcement. But for 13 years, I served as a fully-fledged officer. I won every award possible in the academy. I was the author of FTO test while I was on FTO. I was in my first shooting while on FTO. I made Narcotics Detective within a year. I was 22, promoted to detective. I then went and worked undercover for four years, doing a combination of local, state, and federal. I then became a member of our SWAT team. I was a range master full-time, head trainer for the department, and eventually a patrol supervisor. So it's not like I just graduated the academy, got fired, got arrested like some of these other people do. I've actually had a legit career in law enforcement, seeing about every facet of that. From even when I was range master, dealing with the admin side, very much more of a pencil pusher portion too, from the administrative side. I was part of staff meetings because of that position. But my story took a dramatic turn. I found myself behind bars. sentenced to eight years in prison for something I didn't do proverbial I didn't do it that I always scoffed at people about, laughed at them it's not possible I'm not sure some guys probably got trumped up charges where they're they're increased from what they were that that misdemeanor assault got booked as a felony assault because you pissed the cop off that sort of thing I know that to exist, but the full on when someone would tell me before they got framed they got screwed over that they were a lying son of a bitch that didn't happen not my America kind of thing well it can't happen We'll talk about that in detail, go over my story more and more. Um, you're just kind of give you an overview of what we'll be talking about. So I was in the hole for nine months at this point. Another month in the DOC state-level prison, It's in jail, prison. You go to receiving unit where they kind of determine what prison you're going to go to, what your classification status is, and all those sorts of things. It's really funny to think. i had been a police officer for 13 years. I never even heard of this. I had no idea what classification was, what some of the things they did for um, inmates. So here I am putting people in prison for over a dozen years, and I don't even know how prisons are run, and what it's like to be in prison. You, know, you assume there's, oh, you can't you learn how to work on a car, or can't you get a mechanics toolkit, stuff like that, aren't there programs? You can get a GED, that's about it. And any of the good programs are done by outside volunteers, and DOC doesn't make money off them, so they kick them out. So I'm left with the decision told it's not really a decision. Every cop goes protective custody. Especially in my case, she's quite a bit of notoriety. I was fairly well-known. I had sponsors in the firearms industry and fitness industry. So rather than seek the safety of protective custody, I chose to walk the main line, or like the inmate's term for being in general population. Everything I'm told from the outside is... Yeah, you're probably going to get stabbed to death. You're going to get shanked. You're going to get whatever, beat up. Not like you're coming out of this in a whole, like, real good physical condition, and no one's going to fucking like you. I'll go into the detail, full story, a couple weeks here, but um, it all started with a uh, gang member and the whole cross for me while I was in county jail, and him actually giving me advice, being like, no, you could make the main line. You want to get on the main line, and how I managed to do it. As far as we know, I'm the only one who's ever done it, certainly the only one who's ever survived. This later would actually fuel my unwavering belief that I have now in the value of the men I now called brothers. These men, some of whom I'd actually arrested myself. This was not that far away from the city I'd worked in. talking about less than 100 miles. The city I worked in was the closest prison. All kinds of people from my old agency. But I either got just a respectful, like, hey, we're going to keep our distance. Or I got handshakes and hellos. And we were cordial, if not pretty damn good friends. But I put them in handcuffs. I thought what I saw was a side of humanity I didn't expect to see. It didn't know existed and certainly didn't expect to see in prison. You know, like a hundred-year-old prison, a violent offenders unit, where you've got, like, a serial killer in there, you got a mass murderer. And, I saw something just really consistent come up. The same story. Most of them came from disadvantaged backgrounds. If began to hear their stories, my friends and acquaintances, stories of being discarded. And that's when this got spinning in my head. So what we're going to talk about in this podcast. We're going to talk about my personal transformation. How did I go from here to there? And how can you kind of tune? Where's that where's that logic lead in there? Cuz it's not easy, it's not quick decision for me. I I'm overthinker, overtalker. We're going to tell stories of resilience, both through interviews, anecdotes, emails from viewers, um, recorded videos, all kinds of means. Talk about mass incarceration, what that machine, what that financial machine does to our American economy. Next week, author Michael J. Moore is on, and he's going to discuss how it's really continuation of slavery. Talk about police reform and some cultural changes within those organizations. So mental health, talk about in and out of prison, the absolute lack of mental health care you get in prison, although almost everyone there, we all have a major mental health diagnosis. Certainly the war on drugs, over and over again. Okay. Henry Anslinger, the father of the war on drugs, I want to be the executioner of the war on drugs. Challenges of reentry, what I've been through, what other people have been through, um, how it leads to recidivism, how it leads to some of these unkindness we have in our society, you know, I have a more open mind, more accepting belief. But my, king, my mind can get changed into saying that some of the best people I know are from there. Some of the most reliable, most kind, caring people that were simply, again, born under fortune's darkest cloud, had their potential stolen from them. By a system design to could make things more difficult for the disadvantaged. The low-income communities, communities of color, even the trailer park. Overcoming the stigma, what we can do advocacy and reform-wise, which is a big part of what this podcast is, and community outreach. Shoot me an email, let's get you on here. Let's do a quick Zoom call, email, come by the place. The war on drugs is just weird in American policing. That'll be a theme over and over again. It's a root cause of why the police are now combatants against their own citizens, against their neighbors, as opposed to seen as an ally and a guardian. Because the war on drugs. It has it ripped families apart, costs of all places, the poor communities, more money than the others. It is so expensive to have a family member in prison. Just anyone who's had that, or a best friend or anything like that. It costs you hundreds and hundreds of dollars to stay in contact with your friend a year. You just come up in police work, like how go from what should really just be a possession to having a good old possession with intent. So make him a drug dealer, and now we can sentence him in a different sentencing range, all kinds of other things involved there just to get more prison time. Drugs have been, continue to be, a tool of racial oppression, whether they're intended to be by law enforcement or not, they are used as such. Just the traditions in police, the toxic police culture, and the habits that are in there, and how we can change those. Things that are tied in with our drug laws, such as asset forfeiture, that are clearly violations of civil rights and unconstitutional behavior, but it makes the government a lot of money, it makes the police departments a lot of money, tell you cool bear cats and things like that. That is a good tool from an arms vehicle standpoint, but on whose back was that put there? Because not often it's not that six million dollar grow house you took took down a huge network of them. If the $500 here of this dude's wallet, $500 out of this dude's wallet. And how many of you guys that say, oh, let's, let's rent my new mom? Yeah, probably more than often, they're giving you a bullshit line. But probably sometimes you just took mom's rent. Then just things like moral licensing that can happen, where you just are, you're in a position, I'm good. Everyone tells me I'm good, I'm a hero, I'm a hero, I'm a hero. So everything I do is good. I'm good. What I do is good. Almost well, an effusion of that to that, your identity. They see themselves as good, so it kind of licenses them to do not so good. It's made my life purpose really clear once I came to this uh, realization. When I want to use my passion, my perseverance, the overall persona of what I've been through, unique experience, unparalleled insight to the issues, to really be the one to make this be the catalyst that ends the war on drugs. To me, I was saying like a lofty goal. Day one of a podcast from a guy who's been out of prison for a year. And you're going to say that? I am. And I thank you for joining me on We can take away stigma. You know, we can illuminate hidden stories that highlight the need to end mass incarceration, form our mental health system, and the war on drugs. Is My journey from cop to convict to like a zealot for change has led me to dedicate my life to this. BC isn't about me. So I need send some vehicle to pass on the information. A unique enough story, get the conversation out there, get the change. There's absolutely no reason for us to be having a 50 year old war on drugs. There's nothing but cost the lives of thousands and thousands of people, increased addiction rates, increased drug use, certainly increased the potency of some of the stuff out there, and the lethality through overdoses. It's also safer for law enforcement. Less cops will get shot at or killed, violently assaulted. There's not a massive underground drug market. So when something's like that, just like in prohibition of alcohol, you don't have the ability to call the police, You're outside the protection of the law, you're an outlaw. You don't get to call the police anymore. You know, your whole livelihood is tied up in this drugs. For most people, violence is the only resort they have. Or be a punk and do the shit full. As soon as stories are discarded, that we will illustrate the inhumanity behind mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and we utilize the criminal justice system against those with mental health disorders. It's furthermore, where I can tell you, perhaps the most unique perspective out there it does nothing to increase public safety to put a man in prison that, from a long-term perspective, one of the worst things we can do for overall public safety, cost of living, insurance rates, prevent that man from going to prison. If he was that 18, 19-year-old kid, about there to go to convict school, you learn how to be a real convict, and that becomes it, becomes your culture. When you're there for so long, it changes how you think, changes how you react, and generally not for the best way. A lot more anger, a lot more distrust... So, welcome to the Scarlet People Project. Together, we're going to illuminate hidden stories, lay waste to stigma, get rid of that tribalism, and no more on it, let's change the fucking world.